Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. Late model racing is at the epicenter of American motorsports. Whether on dirt or asphalt, late model drivers, their crew, and their fans are family. And it's the essence of family that makes the world of late model racing one of the greatest of all time. Late Model Mafia and their founders, Mike Gallagher and Kobe Thames, join us tonight to share their experiences and help you understand the gathering place they've created for all the late model enthusiasts to interact, learn, and simply share their stories and good times with one another. That's right, folks. And joining me tonight is the one, the only Mountain Man Dan to talk about late models with the boys from Late Model Mafia. So let's first start off by defining and describing to our audience what exactly is a late model? Are those specifically GM products or does that Uh, label apply to all domestic brands or is it a period of time? What the heck is it? Late models, whether they're on dirt or they're on asphalt, whether it's oval or road course racing, they're they're really in one of a kind. They are purpose built from the chassis up, from nose to the tail. Everything's a tube frame. There's nothing really that even resembles what a normal street car would look like. And Kobe, correct me if I'm wrong, they're one step away from an ARCA car or a NASCAR or anything that you would see on TV. Nothing's production. It's all custom built, handmade chassis. They call them stock cars, but they're so far from stock. It's, it's the best way to put it. There's nothing stock about it. Does it go back to a certain period, starting with the muscle cars forward, or is it just the way they're built? Yeah, it really doesn't. It's all about chassis, right? So, like on my car, yeah. I have a Townsend chassis, and Kobe's car has a Hamkey chassis, and they're purpose built from these two companies. And our cars were designed to run asphalt oval. We took them and turned them into road course cars, dirt cars that I'm I'm a little less familiar with, but we have some people, you know, on the team that that run dirt cars. Um, same thing. They have purpose built chassis all the way up. The bodies that you see on these cars, you know, it, just take NASCAR for example. If you know you're looking at the cars, it looks like a Camaro, but there's nothing Camaro about it. My car is actually a body of, of a Monte Carlo but it's literally just sheet metal and fiberglass. Uh, it comes off in about 20 minutes. Door costs about 30 bucks. <laughs> there are no doors, actually. You just climb through the window like a, like a regular stock car and off you go. It depends on what series you run, really. I mean, you can talk about dirt guys who run 602, 604s, or the super lates where they can pretty much run, run what you brung kind of thing. For Kobe and I, we typically stay LS-based motors, Chevys, which... Adds to the conundrum of Kobe's car, right? The 13, which is a Dodge Challenger body, Hamkey chassis, and an LS-based motor. So there you have it. There's no telling what's coming around the track until you actually get to the pits and get to see, you know, under the hood and see what the guy's actually running. So it's it's kind of wild. So you mentioned uh, two chassis builders in your description of them. Are there other chassis builders out there or those primary? There's probably in the Southeast along as far as like, you know, asphalt chassis in the Carolinas is where they're really big in production. There's probably 25 plus companies out there right now that's building cars. As far as dirt cars, there's tons. I mean, it's everybody's got their own ideas. Everybody's got their own concept. And then there's a lot of companies that'll take a modern name brand chassis and They'll find something they like about it and they'll tweak it and kind of copy it and produce their own chassis. So there's not like a one generic company everybody uses. If there's 25 cars in the field, there may be 25 different chassis. 
but only three really engine types, right? You're talking about the Ford V8, LS, and the Mopar Hemi at that point, right? And most guys, you know, will run something LS-based. They're just super reliable. They're dependable. You know, most guys that run late models, especially road courses and, you know, the regular late models on dirt and asphalt oval, they don't have these million-dollar budgets, right? So they're looking for the biggest bang for their bucks. So they'll go with a CT525 or a 602 crate, 604 crate, something along those lines. Plenty of horsepower for what we need. I mean, my car is actually getting a new CT525, put in it right now. I think I weigh the new motor it'll be about 2600 pounds and i'm gonna have about 750 horsepower so weight to power ratio is gonna be nuts well a great thing that i've mentioned on numerous articles i've written as well as podcasts so i'm a gm guy and with the gm engine itself interchangeability is way better than your ford or your mopar engine because sure. if you go from small block to big block a lot of stuff can be interchangeable so right that's a great aspect of GM motors going in stuff the cool thing about gm too is the 525 and the ls based stuff is and me and Michael's had this scenario <laughs> countless times. You break something stupid, more than likely Advanced Auto's got it. And oh, yeah, we've been at Road Atlanta and we've had to make a dash for Advanced Auto for an alternator or just some stupid part that just broke. Starters, serpentine belts, power steering belts. It's hilarious when you get to the parts store, they're like, uh, what make and model is it? Michael always has to tell them some stupid shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't even know what I tell them half the time. I'm like, yeah, it's a... Uh, not really sure. I'm just kind of winging this here, but it's a Chevy motor. No Which chassis. Chassis. You're, not, you're not going to find it in your database, I promise. You know, it's one of those things. It's a late model. And they go, uh-huh. Yep, got it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what's that? <laughs> Part short, if you got like a 525 or something like that, a small block, basically tell them you got something for a 72 Chevrolet truck. If it's an LS-based, <laughs> about a 99 Corvette, and usually you'll find something that'll work. So you could basically say that at the heart of late model is GM. And that's, that's pretty cool. So it's neat to see that. I mean, despite the sheet metal on the outside, but we all know that, right? You see the new Camaro NASCAR and you're like, that, that's not a Camaro, right? It doesn't share no. anything with it. Gotten so generic. It's ridiculous. Literally they're all now running everybody, Toyota, Ford, Chevrolet are all running the same chassis, just different metal. I may be wrong. I want to say the chassis is designed by McLaren. I don't know if it changed, but there was a rule for a while where they were using the exact same template for the outline had to be the same for the aerodynamics to be the yeah. same. My thing is the original stock car NASCAR back in the day was yeah. pulled off a manufacturer's lot and you took it to the track. And it's not yeah. like that anymore. No, no. These are purpose-built race cars now. There's nothing that came off of any assembly line. These things were built from the ground up basically right there in their shops. So just like ours. And that's what we're going to explore here, right? Is there's more than meets the eye because these things are way more complicated than people realize. And they're a lot of fun to your point. I mean, looking at the weight alone, people go, I think weighs 2,600 pounds. No way. So we'll get into all that. Kobe hit on something kind of interesting before he said about the asphalt chassis all being built in the Carolinas. Are they coming out of Mooresville just like a lot of the trucks and the NASCARs and things are as well? Or are they built somewhere else? There's a lot up in NASCAR country. Carolina is kind of the epicenter of stock car racing. Carolina's also come to home with a lot of the indie teams also. Some of the indie teams have moved operations up there. So I've got buddies that live up around, you know, Charlotte area, Carolina, and that's you either work in NASCAR or you know somebody that works in the racing industry or something. That's just that's what they do up there. Before we get into the more intricate parts of how these late models work, let's take a step back and talk about the origins of late model mafia, where that came from, how you guys met, and everything that goes along with that particular origin story. So who wants to take their first shot? I'll take a crack at it. Oh, <laughs> Since I, called, I called Kobe first. 
I started road racing about three years ago. I hit 40 and I was having a midlife crisis and I have a C7 Corvette, my daily street car. And my wife's looking at me like, don't even think about it. You are not taking that thing to the track. And I was like, all right. So I ended up buying a 350Z for like three grand, beat the brakes off it, had a ball and just fell in love with the Yeah, we both did. Yeah, I'll get to that. We broke that car's back, you know, but we had so much fun. It was reliable. It was a good time. And then I started going to track days, you know, working around, you know, HP junkie and, you know, working with him and just having fun. And it progressed for me to where I decided to go ahead and build my first purpose built race car. I found a a Thunder Roadster chassis. They were one of the classes within NASA that was kind of fizzling in, fizzling out kind of thing. And and I found a chassis with a blown motor, basically a roller, needed a lot of work. I was going to do the upgrade, the high boost upgrade and all that. So I bought it for like three grand. And I started to take decals off it. And I noticed that I saw these logos and they said KTR. I'm like, well, that must've been the last owner. You know, I bought an intermediary from another guy. So I started hunting down KTR and found Kobe Tim's racing. Next thing you know, I somehow got his phone number and I'm like, Hey, you don't know me, but I think I have your race card. (laughs) Remember? (laughs) Yes. I remember I get this call. I can beat on him now. He's like my best friend now. So I can, I kind of beat on him a little bit. I get this call from this Jersey boy asking me questions about a race car. And I was like, yes, but he told me he had my old car and, you know, was asking questions about it. I kind of helped point him in the right direction as far as, you know, where he needed to go as far as, you know, getting that car repaired and back on track. And then, God, I don't remember. Where did it go from there? Honestly, man, I called you a couple of times and we just started talking more and more. And the next thing you knew, man, we were talking about like, hey, do you want to go here? You had already had your comp license with NASA. Yeah. So then you started going me to get my comp license. I ended up getting it in the Thunder Roadster. And then I think it was at Barber Motorsports Park, like is where late model mafia came to be. We, I, I brought, remember I brought the Z up and we just beat the shit out of that car for like- yeah. Two days straight. We got black flagged like 25 times for smoking and for just doing all kinds of ridiculous shit. Man, it was bad. It was so fun. We got video of it. Like we're going by the flag station. They black flag us with our number. It was 023. And they're like, and Co was like, what? (laughs) <laughs> yelling out the window. God, dude it's like a plume of smoke coming out of the back of the car we had i don't even remember what was the weekend we had something leaking dude, we had so much fun that weekend we were sitting around after the saturday track day and we were just drinking beer and having a good time you know Brittany, kobe's fiance and my wife debbie we were just sitting around laughing and goofing and we're like man we need it you know and kobe had been egging me on about buying a late model he was like get rid of that thunder roadster it's slow it's boring trust me once you get into a late model you'll never come back and i ended up buying one Turns out I was hooked. And right there that day, we created Late Model Mafia. We started thinking about names yep. and it was going to be what stock car mafia. And then we changed the Late Model Mafia. Yep. The logo came about within a week. And the next thing you knew, we were LL Steed and we were up and running. Without getting political, that was during 2020. Oh, uh, with the rebel flag and NASCAR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We intentionally used the tagline, make racing great again. Yeah, I saw the, we did. the website and the hats. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a hat, like a throwback hat that actually was red hat like Donald wore, and it said, make racing great again. And there was a 45 on the side for my late model number, which, you know, just happens to be his presidency number. So that was kind of funny, too. <laughs> but we've always tried to be really patriotic with everything. Yeah. As pro-America because we can, because Mike is a vet. I've always been involved in it. And I grew up in a house where – you either rode a Harley Davidson or you didn't bring, you didn't bring it to the house. So we'd go to the international motorcycle shows and stuff. And I'd see the Buell bikes and they were American Bill street bikes. My dad always would tell me, if you're going to have one of those damn crotch rockets, it's going to have to be a Buell. 
to continue on our patriotic theme of, of business. Both of our bloods in my, I was military coast guard for five years, I was a police officer for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's red, white, and blue. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, we started out with, you know, American racing and then did the whole make race a great again thing and just kind of segued it back, you know, and just keeping the red, white, and blue themes going. Nothing's more American in my eyes than a late model stock car. I mean, they're just, it's America, you know, it's America's race car in my book. My dad always growing up, it had to be a V8 or a V twin. That's the way I've always looked at it. Yeah, it's American as hell, man. I mean, it gets no more American, man. Big high horsepower cars and just big boxes, you know what I mean? Ripping around track. So you know, honestly, we started it as like kind of like a joke. Hey, you know, like we're late model mafia. You know, we were teammates. We knew that we were gonna run together in NASA, you know, we had a bunch of other teams out there like Big Dog Racing and Team Tracy Motorsports and Annika's Racing and all these people that had pit crews, you know, or somewhat of a pit crew and teams. They had multiple cars on track at the same time. And we're yeah. better than a team up with another late model. We get side by side on a road course. We're 15 feet wide. Good luck passing us. You know what I mean? So, yeah, we ended up, it just started out as a joke, you know, and, and we were really just laughing and clowning and kind of playing the whole NASCAR BS that was going on. And, and next thing you know, we're doing business and we're in business. My background, I got into road racing in 2018. Well, actually about 16, I guess. We bought an old retired Kyle Busch cup car and we were taking it running track days with it. And I think about every track day group that we went to, it asked us not to come back because it was just ridiculous. It turns out it, it had some issues. We sold it off. I got a Thunder Roadster. I ran it for probably three quarters of a season. And the guy that's over the Thunder Roadster program told me, he's like, the motor you're running is the old Yamaha. It's kind of previous make of engine they use. He said, you need to get the Hibusa. I was on the line of deciding whether or not I wanted to invest in the Hibusa because to upgrade one of these cars from Yamaha to Hibusa was like 15 grand. And I was like, ask me how I know. I was like, Jesus, (laughs) you could go buy a freaking brand new Busa for that. I mean, why the hell is this much money? I got on Facebook Marketplace and actually found the late model that I have. It was a guy actually down in Savannah and down around Michael's area that had it. So we ended up wheeling and dealing, and I traded him a roller Thunder Roadster for a late model turnkey, which I still don't know why he did it, but hey, that's on him. The car got started, and Michael ends up finding out who KTR is, and welcome to the shit show. Yep. (laughs) So as an organization, as a business, what are you guys selling? What are your services? What are you providing? So the biggest thing that we just started, and it's actually really starting to gain traction, is on our website, if you go to latemodelmafia.com and go to, to the page Pit Lane, we're actually doing marketing for race teams now for young up and coming race teams where they get their own website under late model mafia. They have their own webpage, their schedules out. They have merchandise that's available to people that follow them, their fans, you know, video of them. If they have YouTube accounts and all that sort of stuff, we can kind of custom tailor whatever their outfit is, you know, according to their race team, the size and the scope. I think we've got seven or eight teams now and it's limping up for a couple months ago. Something like that. Yeah. It's a very nominal fee, you know, on their side. And depending on what contract is signed with Late Model Mafia, it depends, is kind of dependent on profit proceeds that go back to the team. So basically, you know, if they pay the upfront costs for the website development, marketing, and all that kind of stuff, any sale they make on Late Model Mafia of all their merchandise goes straight to them. So the profits all go back to the team and eventually help fund their team. 
for the teams that you help, are most of those the road course guys, or do you guys have dirt track uh, guys as well? Yeah, so right now, and I can kind of break them down real quick. We've got um, Kobe and I are up there, obviously. Team Tracy Motorsport, she's uh, uh, running NASA. She's a two-time TT champion, and she just changed over to wheel-to-wheel, and she is one badass driver. Kobe and I play hell keeping up with her. She's an awesome driver. Annika Carter with Annika's Racing, she's another great one. She typically runs Spec Miata. She also has a uh, ST car with NASA. And she's been on the show before, so that was part yeah. of the crossover yeah, yeah, as I, well. I thought you guys knew them, yeah. Rita Marie Racing, she's an up-and-comer. Um, she's trying to work her way into the ARCA series. God bless her. We hope she makes it. We know how tough that can be. She's pretty new, and she's developing a car right now to hopefully get her there. And then we've got some Oval guys. Number 22, Josh Labatch. He's actually out of Savannah, Georgia, runs a lot in Cordial and uh, up in Dillon, short track oval with a pure stock. My stepson, Zachary Christian Racing, number 69, just made his debut up at Chris Motorsports Park. He went out for his first outing in his brand new legend that we just put him in. So he's having a hell of a time. And then we've got a champ team that's being developed right now, which is FAFO Motorsports, because why not? I mean, we're having to find out motorsports. It's kind of very fitting. It's more or less a bunch of late model drivers. And that's kind of their mantra is basically, if you don't move, I'm just going to run you over kind of thing. So, <laughs> so they all decided, let's call it FAFO Motorsports. So there we are. A couple others that are looking into it right now and, and like i said it's a great product and i definitely urge anybody that's looking to you know get merchandise out there and, and get their name out there a little more it's literally no must no fuss you tell late model mafia what you want we build it we put it out there for you guys share the heck out of it make your sales make your profits help fund your addiction of racing you know or even track days whatever you're into most of the teams you've mentioned are all in the southeast right now Thank are you yep. guys planning to expand to northeast even out west and everything yeah As- we are absolutely we're fully capable to handle the entire country so it's, it's one of those things that if somebody comes on the website and they they're interested there is a place where they can shoot me their information and i'll get in contact with them within hopefully 24 hours and, and see how it can help i like yeah. the fact that it's not strictly locked into just late models i mean you got some spec miata yeah. some other stuff in there as well so do you see yourselves also supporting the folks that are doing esports because we know a lot of guys that are you know i racing became really really popular a couple of years ago yeah. and there's folks that are running virtual late models out there and they got teams yeah. and they got swag and they need sponsorship is that oh, another yeah. avenue to pursue as well Absolutely. I actually ran ERA last year and had a ball with it. It's, it's a lot of fun. And honestly, it's great practice. You know, it's one of those things where if I wreck my car, I just hit reset and keep going. Unlike my real car that probably cost me 40 grand to fix. iRacing is, is blowing up. We've got some big plans for that here in the near future. We'd love to come back on and, and tell you guys about more once we have a little more developed. Yeah, we'd be happy to take on iRacers. And, so anybody and looking really, for sponsorship and marketing, basically, right? Yeah, anybody looking for sponsorship and marketing in the motorsports arena, drag racing, it doesn't matter. If it's got mo- a motor and four wheels or even two and you want to go fast and you need some marketing, we're here to help you. So how does one go about joining Late Model Mafia? Are there upfront fees? So it's all contractual without getting too deep into it on here. Basically, it's how much you buy in is how much you get back, right? So if you elect to do the, you know, to pay the full price up front, which is very nominal, it's, it's very small. Like I said, Kobe and I are here to make millions. This is part of our passion. This is what we love to do. And if we can help other people great. You know, it's very small and it's really just to help pay for the expenses of the website, putting marketing ads out there. If they pay in hundred percent, they get hundred percent of their profit back. They already have a, a small fan base or even just family and friends that are buying stuff. Even if they purchase from their own website, they get their profit straight back. That's kind of a win-win. I kind of factored it out the other day on the profit margins based, you know, around the merchandise sales. And we don't just do t-shirts. We do hats, t-shirts, mugs, banners, flags, you name it, we can do it. Hoodies, Pants, shoes, I mean, whatever you can dream. We can, we can get them. 
Yep. You want socks? We got bathing suits. I mean, whatever you want, you know, whatever your crowd's into, we can make it happen. It doesn't take much if you were to, you know, to throw in the full top dollar amount and you have a, a pretty popular base already, you'll make that money back in probably the first month or two. Like I said, we're doing this so that we can help people get their names out there, hopefully help advance their careers in motorsports and, and just help them do what they love, you know, because Kobe and I, we know the one thing about a late model, when you ask what the definition is, the, the first part of the definition is goes fast, breaks a lot. We know exactly how bad it sucks to blow a motor and be out $15,000 to, to get this thing fixed, get it back on track to finish the season. It's helped us. I mean, Cubby and I have both made sales just off our own website, you know, and it's it's put money in our pockets. And, you know, it's cool to walk down the street or at a racetrack that you're, you know, your hometown or whatever. And like, there's a guy, you know, walking down the street in your shirt and you're like, yeah, that's cool. You know what I mean? And you don't have to be a NASCAR driver, you know, to get that kind of exposure. What I really like about this program is – this is my 20th year racing. I started in 2002 in dirt go-karts. I wish that we would have had this program back then. It would have helped a lot in marketing and, and everything. But, I mean, we got to figure 20 years ago, we didn't know what social media was. And social media is everything now, it seems like, when it comes to motorsports. And Michael has helped me a lot as far as the marketing and, you know, social media stuff. That's, you know, if you don't really know a lot about it, you can get yourself in trouble with it. If you don't know how to properly use it. Social media is funny, right? It's one of those things where it's a blessing and a curse because everyone's on social media. So how do you get yourself to the top? Thankfully, I have a, a brainiac of a wife who who knows how to maximize SEOs and do all that sort of thing. So the first thing you see when you type in Michael Gallagher, it's going to pop up MGO, Michael Gallagher Racing. It's just a matter of how do you do that? How do you formulate that and get yourself to the top of that Google search? It's invaluable. You know, some people would never even know that my team exists, but they happen to look up racing and somewhere in the Southeast and boom, I'm one of the first to pop up. So thus far, all of your, I guess, client base and people that have joined up, has it all been like word of mouth that you've been It's able all been to word of mouth on? at this point. The SEO, we, we're getting quite a bit of traffic on the website. I just don't think that we have quite the marketing strategy that we need yet. We're still developing it. Quite frankly, it's interesting because we really expect the more late models, especially dirt late models, because those guys are in desperate need of sponsorship that they would have popped up. But we're seeing more road course cars outside of the late model scope. We're seeing Corvettes. We're seeing Miatas. We're seeing legend oval cars we're seeing pure stocks it's went a lot further into motorsports than i thought it would as quickly as it has i thought we would pick up you know late models you road racing and stuff but there's a lot coming for those folks that are looking to work with late model mafia for their sponsorship and getting their brand out there and building their base and all that are there any restrictions or obligations that they should be aware of or is it pretty much open to anybody that's currently racing right now it's open to anybody that's currently racing right now the more the merrier we want as many people to, to get that exposure as they possibly can you know the only thing that we ask is you know we try to keep it as pg as possible a lot of people will come to me hey can you make this shirt and i'm like yeah, that's great, but that's not what our brand's all about. And we're not trying to stir the pot. Yeah, it's funny. You know, we joke around, make racing great again and all that, but we're not going to that level. Keep it professional, have fun with it. That's the biggest part. You know what I mean? If you want a goofy design, we can certainly do that. Or you want something wild that'll catch somebody's eye, sure. We really don't want to dive too deep into politics or we won't, you know, don't want to get into any kind of offensive behavior. Right? And it's racing. It's to bring people together to have fun. Not to yeah, you're building a community. Absolutely. Exactly. So. And I will say this too, that, you know, out of the teams that we have so far, and there's multiple disciplines that between team Tracy and I, you know, it's, it's funny, Kobe and I always, you know, we, we race against Tracy. I mean, and she's probably one of the 
the biggest threats on the racetrack to us. And she always called herself, she's an honorary mafia member because she said, I don't ride, I don't drive a late model, but I'm like, you're in, don't worry, you're good. Everybody's <laughs> in, you know what I mean? Like you're part of the mafia, man. It's That's what it's supposed to be. It's a, it's a big group of people that, you know, I mean, look, I'm 43 years old. I'm not making it to NASCAR. Let's just get one thing straight. I might only because everybody else crashed, but it is what it is, but I'm not here to have fun. I'm, I'm going to blow your mind. Andy Pilgrim got his pro seat with GM when he was 40 years old. So think about hey, that. There's there still go. time, right? I got three years. I got three years on, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's one of those things where it's like, we just want people to come on here, have fun. Even if they don't want to really publicize themselves that much, it gives them an opportunity to build like t-shirts they can wear to the track while they're racing, or even just track day people. It doesn't have, you don't have to race. This could be if you're a track day enthusiast and you're all over, you know, the United States, or even if you just have one track that you call home, like Roebling for me and Road Atlanta for Kobe. It's cool just to have your t-shirt and your number on your back. You know what I mean? Walking around and kind of like, you know, matching your car and, and kind of getting that swagger going, you know, Kobe will tell you, I mean, we, I mean, there it is. Boom. MGR sitting on top of my hat. Kobe's got KTR gear. Yeah, People will identify you with your car and they're like, oh shit, you're the guy driving 45, right? Yeah. How about rec field? Not so good. You know what I mean? But <laughs> why are you laughing, Kobe? I get it. It's more of a lifestyle, right? Yeah, and, it and is. That, it's a lifestyle. And that's part of the racing culture that sometimes is forgotten. People go to track yeah. days, they go maybe once or twice, they don't find their niche and they go home and they never come back. Right. And they're like, what? well, racing really wasn't for me. Like you guys, I grew up in racing long time ago. And so, you know, I ran around the paddock with other kids. We all grew up together. It was always a family environment. You know, there were rivalries. There was this, there was that, but at the end of the day, you're all laughing, goofing off, having a good time for the love of racing, right. For the love of driving. Exactly. So, whether it's a track day or a full blown race at NASA or SCCA or whatever, you know, whatever league you're affiliated with. I mean, end of the day no matter if we recognize each other as long as everybody gets up and walks away man we're cracking beers and having a good time absolutely that's, that's what we're here to do i mean i've had a rubber mallet beating dance out of michael's car so i it don't matter and you know that's probably a great segue for us to switch gears and talk about what it's like to maintain operate and run one of these late models on an asphalt course right we did some previous dirt track and oval type of stuff on this show but now we're kind of bridging the gap and coming back to the track world with these cars What's it like taking a quote unquote stock car, we won't call them NASCARs, and converting them to racing for road racing, like TA2 cars? What's that process like? What's involved? Well, it depends on how serious you want to be with it, honestly. You'll see a lot of guys come to track days and stuff that'll find an old cup car or something like that for sale up in Carolina, and they'll throw a crate motor in it and bring it to the track, and then they're like, well, this thing won't turn right for shit. I wonder why. <laughs> I guess you're talking about as far as converting an asphalt over car, you got to get a hold of somebody that either knows what they're doing or knows somebody that knows what they're doing. You've got to get that chassis straight up. Some of the problems that I've seen people that, you know, bring stock cars, road racing, you've got to get it neutral. You've got to get it straight up. You got to get the chassis geometry right and everything. When you go into turn one at road Atlanta at 120 plus miles an hour, you got to turn right uphill, not left. It can bite you. And you mentioned geometry. That's a huge thing because my familiar with late models is all dirt track up this way. I don't think I've yet to see a late model on asphalt up here. With the dirt track, though, they purposely have their rears set at an angle for when they're going into turns. So right. they get out and slide around. And the way it's set up, it would be a nightmare on a road course. I can imagine there's a lot of math and everything goes into that as well as just trying to figure out how it was set up previously for the other discipline. You're talking about dirt racing. I actually come from dirt. So I'm familiar with dirt cars and, you know, that geometry and stuff. And you're right. You know, you, you kind of preload a dirt car to where your rear end will offset in the corner. Our cars are, you got to keep them straight up. And we have figured out, you know, depending on where you go, 
you might play with stagger. It, like, let's say you got a Roebling Road. There's what more rights than there are lefts down there. Seven rights and two lefts, right? Yeah, you kind of you know make the car a little more to the right, give up a little bit on the lefts if you have to. Just you know, getting the car set up pretty neutral is, is the main part. What are the suspension differences, or even the brakes? Because like if you're on an oval track, you don't really use the brakes all that much. So how do you gear up a car for now? Let's say a, a road Atlanta that is a very technical track where you mm-hmm. have heavy braking zones and loaded up corners and things like that. So what are components are you swapping out if you buy, let's say, something off a of racing jump tomorrow and think you're going to go to the track? We're pretty much using standard light model brakes because we're still 26, 2,800-pound cars. Short tracks, they do pound on the brakes pretty hard. Probably the, one of the biggest consumables in these cars is brake pads and using the correct brake pads. The fluid helps. And fluid, yes. We use Castrol React, which I want to say in the COVID crap got up to like $120 a bottle or something. It's kind of up there. But let me tell you, I faded my brakes coming down uh, to 10A at Road Atlanta last time about 155, 160 miles an hour. Went to pump and brakes and downshift and do everything I could to stop that car. And that day I, I rolled out and got Castrol React and never had that issue since. Yeah. For those of us that are familiar, we call it SRF in our paddock. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. SRF, <laughs> yep. I've seen people do that before, you know, buy old stock cars and stuff. And they'll just grab off the shelf brake fluid, DOT, throw in it, eat a bowl. You can forget it. But like you were saying, as far as going from oval to road course, probably one of the main things is getting air to the brakes. You got to keep the brakes cool. You got to get the brake bias set up right. Using good pads, using good fluid. Well, most often not using the brakes unless you have to. So what about the suspension itself? Like on an oval track, I would say, yes, there's suspension, but it's pretty static in a certain way, right? You're going to set it up for the banking and the degrees and all that. But on a road course where you have all sorts of undulation and modulation, especially if you're on a natural terrain track like road atlanta right. you know are you using multi-reservoir you know six-way olins and conies like bilstein's what are you using because we're used to that on production-based vehicles what do you go to from a stock car to then turn it into a, a road course car we're still using the same shocks that you typically use in a light model just different spring rates and the way they're set up and the way different they're geometry is a big point yeah you know, you're talking about straightening the car up. Are you actually tweaking the two frame itself and straightening it up? Or is it just a matter of getting all of the components basically square? It's basically, you know, just as far as geometry and setup and everything, getting it straight up because I'm not going to go blow $100,000 on a new stock car for a track day, you know, NASA racing or something like that. If you had the money to go buy a new chassis and you could buy a front clip that was straight up, you would be ahead of the game. Majority of people don't have millions to blow. The Hamke car we've got, we just straightened it up as much as we could. I got with Jimmy Garman, which is one of the biggest late model gurus in the Southeast. He's worked with uh, many of the guys that's in the Cup Series field today. I took the car to him. You know, he helped me get it straightened up, get everything right. Hey, if Hendrick wants to throw two cars at us, we're here. Yeah, right? Mafia.com, we'll take two time attack cars. Two track attack cars. <laughs> I 16 in a seat. Uh, those cars are undeniably amazing, you know, what they produce for the money. I mean, you know, they're expensive, but for what you're getting for that money is unbelievable. Got a buddy that's got one sitting in his shop right now. I won't name drop because I'm not supposed to. It is ridiculous, you know, the way those track attack cars are built. And it's literally one of his son's cars. That's all I'm going to say. So if I read between the lines on this, it sounds like with the setup, you could easily go, let's say you're a Pocono, you could be running the tricky triangle and then be running the double infield and go back and forth on setup without really having to change any components. So the question is, how long does that take? Or is it all, hey, I've got it pre-prescribed for this track, move it to this position, lock it in and, and go about your business. 
it's all measurements really fine-tuning yeah. everything and just adjusting everything out if you had the right people and the right stuff a couple hours you could be good to go Thanks for me. I both run Jericho four speeds in our car. That's another big difference between short track oval versus what we do. We obviously need a little more gear than what those guys have got. Most of these cars are converted over to Jericho four speeds, winners, quick change rears or tigers, you know, something along those lines where we can swap gears out quickly for whatever track we're running. Let's talk about maybe some of the advantages of these cars on a road course and maybe some of the bigger drawbacks, right? They seem really appealing. Like who doesn't want to go drive quote unquote a stock car on a road course, but there's got to be pluses and minuses to it. So what have you guys learned over the years? You know, some of the things you just put up with and tolerate and other things that are just freaking awesome. And that's why you love them. You have to learn to tolerate stuff's going to break. I don't think we've ever had a perfect weekend there. You're going to wrench on it. We, we don't have a spec Miata or, or something like that. There's going to come some point between two cars that we're going to have to turn wrenches on something. It's mostly preparation. If you're willing to spend the money and keep good brake pads under the car and, you know, just keep the fluids changed out and everything, you really shouldn't have a lot of trouble. To Kobe's point, the biggest thing is like, I had a 383 stroker in my car. It was a built motor and it lasted me. You know, it was new to me. I think they had one season on it. What, Cobes? Eight races and I yep. grenaded the thing. It was a built motor. Tolerances are much closer. I had to run 110 because, you know, it was everything was higher dollar, more this, more that. So when that motor finally went, I said, you know what? We're not doing this again. I'm just going to go to a CT525 GM performance crate motor and I know it's going to be reliable. Keep the oil in it. Make sure it's good. You know what I mean? Check fluids. Motor will run strong. Every two seasons or so. I got to do a refresh and I'm good. And Kobe's right. I mean, whether it's a transmission or the brakes or something, something's going to go wrong on that car. Just have parts, be ready, you know, or make sure there's an advanced auto close by. Cause like Kobe said earlier, most of the parts we need are pretty generic when you go to these LS based motors. I always try to keep, you know, a spare set of brake pads, hubs or something like that around, but there's majority of the stuff can be purchased. Like I said, we can make a repair at the track out of your local parts store typically. And unless you're in the wall and, you know, on the rollback, typically we can repair at trackside. After running these things for a couple of years, you know, we've got, who is at uh, Magnus, you know, they help us with all of our transmission issues. If we ever grenade a transmission, we send it off to them. They totally rebuild it. The cost will be as crazy as you want it to be, right? Yeah. If, if you want 850 horsepower and some wound out motor, then yeah, you're going to pay for it. If you want some NASCAR style, cup style motor, yo, yeah, you're going to pay and you're going to rebuild it every two weeks games or whatever it takes honestly reliability over a couple extra horsepower wins every day in my book you know i think kobe and i have both learned that very valuable lesson coming from built motors over to something more reliable they're just tricky cars you know i mean they're very basic cars i mean it's really just horsepower meets ground and go but when you're asking a car to do that for as long as we do at the speeds we do shit's gonna break you know so you just gotta be ready for it you ended on earlier speaking like a spec miata people know spec miata has regulations what can and can't be done to the car for late models is there anything like that or is it a free-for-all how you want to set your own car up and run it like that because you mentioned going from a three to three uh in nasa competition we fall under super unlimited run what you brung and hope like hell you brought enough we've actually ran into that situation a few times we may unload and be the freaking fastest thing there but then again, we had another buddy, Brian Tyler, that he's a freaking sprint car legend from the Midwest. He showed up with a uh, crown lightning, a, yeah, a lightning crown sprint car, and took it road racing. Holy shit! How's that going to work? But it, it is. Yeah, he was flying. 
And, you know, the difference is there, too, when you talk about road racing is we do a lot of interclass racing. So we'll have Super Unlimited, Super Touring 1 through 5. We'll have Specky 46. There's a bunch. Thunder Roasters, Thunder Roaster Extreme. You know, you've got a bunch of different styles of cars out there. You have radicals out there. I mean, there's some open wheelers out there from time to time, you know, formula style cars. I think the biggest allure to me with late models is just the horsepower, the sound. I mean, when you hit yeah. that throttle, your ass is gone. See you later. You know what I mean? It's we're hell coming down a straightaway or a big sweeper, but it's a mechanical grip car. So when we start getting into those tighter turns, we've really got to focus and we've really got to, you know, drive the car where these other guys running radicals or, you know, these high downforce cars, they can't keep up within the straightaways, but they're going to equalize when it comes time for the tight yeah. turns because they're just point and shoot, right? They're not worried about 800 horsepower blowing off the back end. That downforce is holding the track and they're gone. We got to make up our time where we can and they're going to make up the time where where they can and we're, hopefully we're going to get to the finish line ahead of them or they might beat us. You know, it's just you one know, of those things. Right there, that's a point as far as bringing stock cars or late models into road race. Road racing has always kind of been looked at as the gentleman's sport, I guess you would say. Not much beating and banging going on there. We've knocked the hell out of each other. I've had my bumper on his bumper pushing him down the straightaway at Roebling at 160 mile an hour. Guess you got to trust your buddies, whatever. But that's one of the cool things about these cars is, is you can beat and bang on them and, you know, rough them up pretty good. And you're not worried about wrecking your Corvette or your Ferrari or your Radical or whatever. Like you said earlier, a door panel's, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 bucks. You could put a whole new front bumper on for, what, 100 maybe? Kobe's point, you know, you listen to, like, these Radical drivers or Corvette drivers. They get so antsy when we're around them because they know we just don't care. We're in a race car. Neither do the Miata guys, so just... No, yeah, exactly, right? They're like like the the spec Miata. We're like the Thunder version of the spec Miatas and Lightning for, for NASA, right? I mean... We just, it's a giant piece of sheet metal and you can literally go to AR bodies or five-star bodies and buy another door panel for 50 bucks. You know what I mean? So as far as us going into road racing that we kind of had to chill out, I guess you would say maybe, because we're typical stock cars, we're going to beat and bang on each other. And then we had a lot of people in NASA that would get butt hurt. Like, oh my God, they leaned on me in the corner. Who cares? I mean, you give me a rubber mallet and a four before block, we'll straighten the door back out. Didn't Cole Trickle say rubbing his race? That's right. <laughs> and now I know why he said it, because he was driving a car similar to ours, you know, where other people <laughs> may not may not agree with us, right? I mean, look, at the end of the day, like Kobe said, the, the front bumper on my car for both pieces is like 200 bucks, you know? And if I rip it off, so be it. I've got friends local here at uh, Southern Knights Racing. He bends his own sheet metal. I mean, he can build you a body for a dirt late model, my late, whatever you want. He can have it to me like next day. That's one very big advantage of a late model over a production car that's out there road racing is if you make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. It's just a piece of metal. You know, it's not a $6,000 door on your Corvette or, a, you know, a whole front bumper on a God knows what on a BMW. You're not as scared to maybe try that corner a little faster next time because, you know, you're in a really safe cage and your body is pretty expendable. It's really beneficial that a lot of the panels are fairly flat on those cars as well compared to some of your production cars where it's got all these weird curves yeah. and bent to it. Right. That's well, thanks to Kobe, my whole right side is no longer flat. It's more wavy. <laughs> I leaned on makes you leaned on me, yeah. like it's waving in the wind. <laughs> it kind of does this now as you look down the side of it because Kobe decided to lean on me and turn one at Roblox. Okay, hang on. It's his wife's fault. <laughs> Why is it her fault? Because when she put the new wrap on his car, she told me on the grid, she said, if you scratch his car, I'll kill you. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I came back in with a tire with a donut on the side of my car right on my five. I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, Mike, I want to ask you this question. You said it earlier, and I, I know, I know that even though your wife said you couldn't take the Corvette on track, I'm sure you've turned a couple laps in it. So, when you compare your Corvette to your late model, what do you think about the differences? Right, because the Corvette's fast, it's light, it's all very modern and computerized and all that. Yeah. But how do they differ, and how do they compare? And obviously, you love your late model, but if you had to do it all over again, was walking away from the Corvette still the right choice? Yes, absolutely. It's two totally different worlds. Best way to say it, I think, is a late model is just raw power that you have to control. There's no assist. It's not like you're on iRacing, you turn on all the assists and you pray for the best in the end of the turn, right? I mean, it's you in the car. That's it. You don't have traction control. You don't have ABS. You got none of that crap. You mess up, it's on you. With my Corvette, if I get a little wonky, the traction control kicks in and kind of straightens me up a little bit, keeps me out of trouble a little more. I've learned how to drive a car so much better, even with my Thunder Roadster and now this late model, than I think I ever could in a car with all those assists. It's, it's night and day difference. You'll see us in there, you know, like on the cameras and we're just sawing the wall trying to keep that car straight and stay in the throttle coming through a turn. Where my Corvette's more smooth, you know, I don't have to worry about it because I know that slip and that trash control is going to kick in if something goes wrong. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, I, I got this. I got this. The car will tell me when it's enough. The late model is going to tell you when you're backwards staring the rest of the field going, uh-oh. But backwards in the woods at Roebling, yeah. Backwards in the woods. And yeah, we've, we've been there a couple of times. So are there any tracks where you kind of regret having a late model and you wish you were in the Corvette instead? Um, like- No, honestly. To each their own, right? It's what I love to drive the Corvette at each one of those tracks too, just for the experience. Absolutely. But I think I'd take my late model over the Corvette any day. It's the sound. The horsepower, like I can't wait to get Daytona this year for hopefully, you know, I get the car back. Dude, I cannot wait to put that late model up on those banks, on those bank turns. Like, you know, with the Corvette, it's just very street feel. With a late model stock car, you're in a race car and there is no getting around it. I think Annika did a a thing on Track Shaker where she drove my car. And I think one of the things she said is, you know, it's like a race car. She said, "I've I've driven a C7 Corvette on track and I've never been in a late model. And she said, the one thing about race cars, they always feel like they kind of want to kill you. Mm-hmm. It's true because the car is just a beast. Just, it wants to go. You hit that skinny pedal and it's gone. It's up to you to maintain control of it. And it's just, it's a wild ride. You come out of turn nine at Roebling or coming down out of turn seven at Road Atlanta and you just drop the hammer on that thing, man, and just go ripping through the gears. The next thing you know, you're doing 165, 170, 175. You feel like you're doing four miles an hour because the car is so big, but you're just blasting past people on the straightaway. And you're like, oh, you're slow. And then you realize you got to turn and here come all those damn high downforce cars up your butt because you're like, ah, you know, like trying to everything you can to make that turn. And they're just pointing and shooting. You just got to know where you can give up time and make it back up. No, I don't, I don't think I could ever say that I would take the Corvette over. I mean, I love the Corvette. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, the late model is just a, a beast of its own. You mentioned earlier the fact that getting into the late model and if you dent the door or something like that, it's not as bad as if you're doing the Corvette. Do you think that inflated confidence helps with the want to be in the late model because like yeah. I, I, I did a lot of motocross yeah. when I was younger. So going from He's motocross being on a bike to being inside a car, yeah. my confidence is way higher than it would be. If yeah. I was still on a bike. yeah. So a, a funny story. When I was still just doing track days, I went out with, it was either just tracking or max speed track days here at Roebling. I was still in my Z. It's a cool car. It's fun, but dude, it was such a shit box and it still is, you know, we're totally redeveloping the car for champ car. Like the motor's got to come out. Everything is getting redone, but I was out there and I had been out on the track probably for like six, eight months. And I, I know Roebling like the back of my hand. I mean, it's 10 minutes from my house and I'm out there beating C7 Corvettes. And these guys came in, two of these vets came in and I'm passing them left and right. And then they're like, they came over and they're like, dude, what do you have in that thing? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you're passing this like in the turns everywhere. And I'm like, dude, it's stock. I popped the hood, dude. It's a 200,000 mile 
VQ35D. You know what I mean? There's nothing special. Dude, the suspension, every time you turn it, pop and crack. Like it was a $3,000 shitbox. But I had so much fun because I didn't care about it. If I wrecked it, oh, well, I didn't have $85,000 an insurance company to go to and say, I think I wrecked it on 95. You know what I mean? Like, cause I mean, that's a huge concern. And then if you, if you want to play it safe with a super expensive car, you know, like Corvette or a Porsche or a McLaren, you've got to get track insurance. And I don't even want to know what that costs. You know, I've heard of some horror stories where these guys are spending thousands of dollars for a weekend and they only get like 40% of the value of the vehicle back. I'm like, what's that? I mean, dude, just crash into the wall. Who cares? <laughs> so I think you're right. It, it does give you a kind of an inflated sense of what you can do because you're not afraid to push it because guess what? It's not my daily driver. If I do skirt the wall or I do, you know, clang it off of somebody or I hit it in the tire walls, um, dude, I'm going to take a pry bar and a welder or a torch and just bend it the frig back unless something catastrophic happens. Then I just take it back to, you know, over to Southern Nights Racing and, and they straighten it out for me and go, all right, here you go. Here's car back. Or that, I would probably cry. I'd just walk back to the pits crying like sobbing, you know what I mean? Cause I just destroyed my baby. So it's, it's a whole different world. You know, I think it gives you more confidence being in a stock car because you know, all these late models and everything, they're basically built off the idea of NASCAR roll cages. And as far as yeah. their geoduction, any race we go to, there's not a safer race car at the event than what we're in. We're pretty much bomb proof in there. I mean, I've seen a guy roll it over and turn one. He lost his brakes going to turn one at Roebling. If you know Roebling, that's a super long straightaway followed by a right turn. And if you don't make the right, you're going into the, into the dirt wall, up over the trees. And that's exactly what he did. There wasn't anything left but the cage. And he walked away. And when you feel safe behind the wheel of something that's got that much power, you're more willing to try to push the envelope a little bit. You don't have to worry about what it's going to cost if you bang it up or if you tear a body panel up or if you get in the wall or if you go off track and tear a splitter off of it or something like that. I guess I shouldn't say this, but if you got a set and you don't give a shit, you can haul ass in one of these cars. As long as you got the car set up right safety-wise, which is something that we are very big fans of, don't buy the cheap stuff. Set the car up right, good seat, good belts. You know, you'll be okay. Wearing an Alpine Stars hat for a purpose. Mike and Kobe, let me ask you this. For the folks that are looking to get into late models, is there an opportunity out there either with Late Model Mafia to come and try a car, maybe somebody that's in the group that's got one, or where would you recommend somebody going to get one of these cars on the cheap if they're trying to get in for the first time? Stop it right there. Do not go buy a good deal. No, no. If you see a car on Racing Jump that, oh, it's turnkey ready to go for eight grand, 10 grand. No, it's not. It's not. It's it's a pile of junk. This is probably going to get you hurt or break your bank account. Most you times know, those cars are people's cars that have raced for three to four years. They know the engine is spent and they're just trying to get rid of it to get something new themselves. And it's nothing against them. It's just, that's just the nature of the beast with most things on racing junk. You have to search for the good deals, you know, or buy the right car. I mean, as far as somebody wanting to get seat time on one of these things, no, unfortunately you, you, you kind of got to make the commitment and the investment to get into the program. Probably the best thing you can do is come hang out, you know, with us or whoever. We've got a lot of friends in late model racing. Get in with a good shop, a good house, something like that. They can point you in the right direction because you could give me $50,000 and tell me to go buy you a turnkey race car and you're not guaranteed to get anything good off racing junk or Facebook marketplace. You need to know somebody that knows somebody and get something good. You know, the other option, if it's somebody that's just looking to experience what it's like to be in a late model, you know, most of these NASCAR tracks have those experiences, right? The NASCAR experience, 
you're not going to really be able to like wide open the car, you know, and really let it, you know, send it in turn one. But I mean, to get that experience and the sound and the horsepower, you know, and go through a class and get to see what these guys do. And I think people would really appreciate that because, you know, got, you know, these guys in NASCAR and, and, you know, the Xfinity Cup and Xfinity and ARCA, I mean, look, they, they earn their money. You know, I, I never thought it either when I was younger and before I ever drove a late model. And I've quickly realized just how skilled those drivers are to be able to do what they do week in and week out. So for an individual looking to get into late model, would you guys be open to them, like reaching out to you guys on late model mafia and be like, hey, I found this deal. Do you think it's worthwhile? Is it something I should look into further or just walk away from it and don't think about it a second time? Is that something you guys openly give advice to people for? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the way I got into it. And as far as coming over to stock cars and road racing and stuff, I bought what I thought was a really cool, good deal. But it turns out it was a car that Kyle Busch backed into the wall at Daytona. They got straightened up, become a show car, and it was about as wonky as it came. Yeah, and uh, the, the funny part is there's no car facts for a late model, right? Like, you can't check it out. Like, God only knows what my Townsend chassis has been through in the past 18 years. I mean, God only knows. It, it could be bent up three times, re-straightened, and kept right on rolling. You don't know what you don't know. The biggest piece of advice I have is if you have a friend that's local that has been in the late models or in any sort of racing and you're looking to buy a car, take them with you. Don't go it alone because they're going to see things that you'll never think about. You're looking at it. Oh, the tires look good and the brakes look good. And, you know, the body's in decent shape, but they're looking at the chassis as straight as this, as that. You know what I mean? Is the motor even in there straight? I mean, <laughs> some of these guys yeah. just drop a motor and they don't line them up, nothing. I mean, it's just boom, see ya. And they send it. You know, and next thing you know, you're putting a huge load on your transmission. And next thing you know, you got a torch transmission or rear end. Got a couple of really good friends up in the Atlanta area that are kind of doing that now. They're big fans of late model racing as far as road racing and stuff. And, they're buying cars that are, you know, nice, respectable cars. And you can get in touch with a guy like this and kind of tell him, you know, what the budget is, what you want to spend. And they'll build you something legit and turnkey, ready to go to the track. It's probably not as expensive as you would think. I've actually talked to some people that's told me that they had more money in a spec Miata than we have in a stock car. That's saying a lot. But just realize, you know, you might be able to buy one, a decent one for between 15, 25, maybe 30 grand. But... Just know when that motor goes, you're talking anywhere from eight to $15,000 to replace it. You know, you're not going to find a cheap motor unless you just go to the junkyard and try and find something that'll suffice. They're an investment for sure. And I think you alluded to it earlier. They're not for the faint of heart either. So I would no. recommend from a coach's perspective, learn on something else first, something with the right seat. So you can at least get an idea of this, what it's like being out on the track, because I mean, outside of your guys' mentorship and tutelage, it's going to be very difficult for somebody to jump into one of these turnkey race cars and A, be safe, B, be fast, and C, figure out where the hell they're really going. So it's a progression, right? You don't start with a late model. You probably don't end with a late model, but it's going to be, to your guys' point, the most fun you're going to have during your journey as a driver if that's on the resume that you're building, but you just can't start there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I jumped into them way too early. I went from a Thunder Roadster, 180 horsepower, you know, little tiny open wheel car, open top car, and, and just went head first into a late model and drove it like I was driving a Thunder Roadster, which was a huge mistake. I got in <laughs> over my head. I spun a bunch. Kobe's laughing at me on the radio. I'm cussing him out. You know what I mean? Like, I got you. I'm coming. I couldn't catch him because I just didn't have that wherewithal in me yet to understand what it took to drive in a car. And it took me, you know, six, eight months to really start dialing it in and getting it. People ask, oh, how do I get one of these? And what I do, I'm like, well, you know, have you driven a race car before? Have you 
been on a track. Oh, I've been on a track, but you know, it's in a, you know, I was in, you know, a, a BMW Z4. I'm like, no, 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 no. not yet. Yeah. yeah and, and there are guys out there. There are some of these chassis that are actually two seaters, you know, where they've converted them and they put a second seat. We know one or two locally here, you know, in the Georgia area that have those. And, you know, and these guys are great. Like if, if you go to an open track day and you see one that's got two seats, say, Hey man, can you take me for a ride? And 9.9 out of 10 times the guy that owns the late model. Like, hell yeah, man, jump in. It's actually something we've discussed building as far as business-wise for the late model mafia was building a two-seater so we could go to track days or HPDE and take our friends for a ride. I just got to figure out insurance if Kobe's driving. Bobby's <laughs> <laughs> just scaring the hell out of Debbie Gallagher. I've always said that I wanted to get a two-seater and get her in it shotgun and just make her scream like a little girl. Doesn't take much. I did that in a Z. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mike, but, you hinted to it earlier regarding the fact the late models don't have any of the driver assist options on them. It is strictly a driver's ability in the car. And a lot of the people that do a lot of the HP events have gotten so used to driver assist items. The late model, from what I'm taking, is definitely not your fresh, you know, novice driver to hop in and go. Get some experience under your belt. Work your way up to that and then get into it. Yeah. And if you decide that, yeah, you know what? hell with it. I'm going to jump into a late model right away. You need to start in D1 and work your way up and just realize that it's only going to go as fast as you let it. As hard as you hit that skinny pedals, as fast as it's going to go and just realize, know your limits, you know, and understand that it's a whole different world. You got to get those tires warmed up. You got to make sure that the suspension's right. If, if you set up your suspension wrong for a certain track, you're in serious trouble before you even roll out on the track. And you're not going to realize until it's too late. You know, these guys have been doing this for a long time. I'm relatively new to it. So when we go to the track, I listen to Kobe, you know, and these other guys that he's mentioning and just try to absorb everything like a sponge so I can learn as much as possible. Could you buy a late model out of the gate? Absolutely. Should you just go out there and go full send like I did? Oh, hell no. That's just a bad idea. You know, yes. I highly recommend either a uh, throttle restrictor or a governor. Yeah, absolutely. But I will say this, you know, for the younger generation growing up, like my stepson, Zach, he just ran his first race in Oval. You know, and I was kind of like waffling as to what I should get him for his first car. You know, I know that he's going to eventually end up in late models. He, he loves Kobe's car and my car to death. And, you know, he's crewed for us for years since we've both been out there with NASA and even running DE. I was going to buy him something like a Z and I said, you know what? I'm going to buy him something that's totally out there. I'm going to buy him a, a U.S. Legends car. And let him go run oval for a while. I don't want him to learn on the assists. If he wants to make it to late models, he needs to drive something that needs to be driven and not assisted to drive. So, you know, he's been out there already. You know, he had his first race and, and he loved it. He was out there. He was a slowpoke for practice and warmups and qualifying. He started picking it up, but he's starting to realize now that, you know, it's not just holding the steering wheel and cruising around. I mean, you're, you know, you're really letting this thing have it in order to keep it going where you want it to go. And I think that's going to be his biggest attribute when he moves up. Again, I think it helped me with the Thunder Roadster because there's no assist in the Thunder Roadster. I mean, it's balls of the wall the whole way. That at yep. least gave me some sort of a shot with a late model when I first stepped in. Up running dirt and for anything from go-karts to late models, all that stuff. And first off, there's no assist whatsoever. I've never drove a race car in my life or anything that had assist on it. The assist was what's between your ears and hopefully used it smart enough. It's one thing that's really helped me is dirt experience on road course racing because you let these cars skew out so much. You let these cars rotate so much through the corner. People think that you're just turning left. No, and Michael can tell you there's, if you follow behind me, you'll be like, yep, he's gone. Oh, how the hell did he do that? There's times I've, I've drove the car sideways and I look back at my dirt experience and it, it helps with that. 
I reverted back when my late model went down middle of the season or middle of last season. I went back to the Z just to play around a little bit. The trash control came on at Roebling and like a couple of turns and I'm like, just piece of shit. You know what I mean? I was like stupid track. I'm like reaching down, trying to hit the trash control button because I hate it. You know, I, I want to feel the car rotate. I want to know what it's doing and not have it stop itself because it thinks it might lose control. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's a whole nother level of driving that, that I don't think people realize are street cars. That's like the weekend you had trouble with your late model and you unloaded the uh, Thunder Roasters with backups. That was miserable for him. That oh, was, that was, it was so frustrating. He went from 700 plus horsepower to buck 80. Buck 80. And I'm like literally getting passed by the late models and the vets. And I'm like trying to Fred Flintstone it like through the floorboard, like trying to get the car to go fast. Come on, come on, come on, come on. But I caught him in the turns for a little bit and then it just left me again. So it was like, I get up. It's the same story back. we hear from the auto owners. So, you know, whatever. You're in good company. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fun. <laughs> so that brings up a really good question I like to ask people. So what's your biggest oops moment or maybe code brown moment on track with your late model? <laughs> Mine pales way in comparison to Kobe. You know, honestly, when I first got my late model, I really haven't had any major oopses. I've spun it a bunch, you know, in the race and practice and whatever, test and tune. You know, honestly, the biggest oops was just I jumped in way too fast. I went from my Thunder Roadster, which they're fast. They're faster in the turns than they are in the straightaways. And I got to be honest, when I first went down the straightaway in my late model, I'm like, holy, I would never go back. I mean, that horsepower, that speed, that sound, I was like, I'm done. I'm hooked. That's it. You know, and the thunder road, when are you coming back? Never. Nothing against those guys. Those are fantastic cars. But you got to drive this thing. It just sounds like something off a TV, you know, and you're just hooked on it immediately. I pushed it too hard. You know, I ended up spinning a bunch of times. I was like in like fifth place in the race, my first race in a late model. Ended up spinning two or three times all the way to the back of the field, got all the way back to eighth place. And then me and a Mustang got into it and turned one at Roebling on the white flag. You know, it is what it is. Both kind of entered the turn at the same time. I was on the inside. He was on the outside. Well, he ended up on my inside. I ended up outside backwards with the front busted up clip that cost me a hundred bucks to fix. He didn't fare so well, unfortunately. You know, we just kind of met. But yeah, no, that's mine. It, it wasn't much, but uh, I, I've got plenty coming, I'm sure. Go ahead, Kobe. Tell him your fantastic story. Um, well, Road Atlanta this past December. Did you have? A, you didn't have a car there, did you? No, I, mine, mine was still down. He wore you at five, I think. You were in the S's? I was third five. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was actually. Let me let me set this up because he's not going to give it to you the right way. Because there, this is a crazy story and a scary story, but it was kind of funny as hell. Because it's just, you got to understand who Kobe Tims is. Like, when you get on the radio and tell him it looks like something's wrong with his car, he goes, F that, let this bitch eat. And he just keeps right on going. The dude has no fear. And I've learned so much from his driving because he just doesn't give a shit. Like, he just goes. He wants to win. He wants to be up front no matter what. I mean, I've seen him spin at Road Atlanta or at uh, Roebling going to turn three. I'm coming around or I'm coming out of two and I see him over in the woods. I got a, a half a lap on him and, and the whole field does. And here he comes. A lap and a half later, here he comes like a bat out of hell. I mean, he's just, he's a, he's a maniac, you know, he's just, but he's a great driver. You know, he just, he knows what he's doing. You know, so yeah. So to set this up, hang on dad, you wait, because I know where you're going. He calls me up and he's like, Hey, come up to the track. We're going to road Atlanta. I need you to crew. It's fine. No problem. I'm on the way. So we go up there. We're hanging out. We're having a good time. It was what? Two races that weekend. Saturday went shittily. Because you ended up with carbon monoxide poisoning because your your friggin' exhaust pipe let Get loose of the header. Start there first. Uh, I'll preface that, and then you can start. Okay, Saturday, we had a really fast car. We're doing great. I started getting a little light-headed, a little choked up in the car. I was like, what the hell's wrong with this thing? I started getting sick in the car. Next thing I knew, I threw up in my helmet. And I was like, oh, shit, what's going on? I seen the flagman. I think he threw down three to go or something at us. And, or something like that. And I was like, I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to hang on to it. 
I finished the race and I noticed the car was louder for a reason. The collector pipe after the headers that runs down the transmission tube come loose. It was dumping all the exhaust in there with me. He gets on the radio. He goes, get back here quick. I'm not feeling too hot. I was like, what? Yeah, like, <laughs> as soon as we got to the checkered flag, I dropped the window net. Was literally ripping my helmet off going around the track. I didn't care what they said about it. Come all the way around, all the way back to the paddock. You know, when that car is going slow. It's not getting a lot of fresh air in it at all. So I was gagging to death. I got back to our pit box, and his wife was there. And I, I call her Mother Goose because she takes care of me. I don't know what I did. I looked at her. I said something, and I think she called Michael and said, "Get medical up here." I can't remember what what was my auction level. It was not good. I don't remember what it was, but it was Is not that a number. number. It was <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was oh shit because they put him in the ambulance, took him down to the medical facility there at Rhode Atlanta, and had him for two hours on oxygen. Yeah, they were getting that, transporting. That, That's how low he was. Like he did not look good when he got out of the car. Let's just put it that way. We come back in Saturday night. I think we had our awards banquet that night, didn't we? Mm-hmm. I was sick as a dog. I had carbon dioxide poisoning. It's one of those weekends. Looking back, I shouldn't have raced the next day, but we did. I guess who raced the next day? He said, I'm still going to send it. Oh, he did. Full sends only with Kobe Timms. That should be his nickname, Kobe Full Send Only Timms. So we get the car back. We have the NASA Awards Banquet and all that. We go to that. Me and you stayed up and fixed the car. We got it ready to go. So we go out Sunday. We had a good day. We were running good, I thought. Practice and qualifying went great. Yeah, Yeah, went great. We developed, what, about five or six laps in, a little smoke. Now, mind you, this is how competitive this guy is. This was a fun race. They raced the, the race on Sunday, and then they had a fun race. So he went out, no guts, no glory, just, hey, let's go have fun. And went to the so rear he, behind, what, like 3,000 cars or something oh like that? Oh, my God. Dude, the, the, you guys were stacked up in, the, like, turn nine when they took the green flag at the start finish. There were so many cars in there. Then I think they had the rollback out there racing, too. I mean, everybody was out there. So I told him, I'm going to go spot for you in turn five. I'll be on top of the golf cart. I got you. I can see pretty much the whole back of the track. I think Debbie and Brittany were up front. Mm-hmm. He comes around. I guess it's like, yeah, four or five laps in, and he is moving. I mean, just flying, like carving the field up, ripping it up, like truly showing what a late model can do. You know what I mean? With just eight to 12 cars a lap down the back straight. Yeah, he was just ripping them down the back straight. And then he was he was just nailing all of his marks at Road Atlanta. I mean, he knows the track really well, and he was really doing well. And he comes up, turn five, and I see fire in the wheel well behind the tire, kind of like up by the firewall, like where the headers come down. And I, one thing about Kobe Timms and, and KTR number 13 is it, if he's not smoking, something's wrong. Like <laughs> always. He comes up. He, he was smoking lightly the whole time. I figured he probably just put too much rear gear dope in it or something like that. It was blowing off the breather and, and it was hitting something hot. Everything was fine. Power was good. Temps were good. I'm on the radio making sure. And, and he comes up. He's on fire. I see a flash of flames come out of the wheel well behind the tire, by the headers and all that good stuff. And I'm like, eh, you're on fire. I'm like, bring it in. He goes, let me see what it does. And he goes in the six, comes out of six, comes out of seven. I see him get on the back straight. He wasn't on fire. He said, F and I'm gonna let this bitch eat. I'm like, here we go. Before I can turn around, there's three Specky 46s coming up, turn five sideways. I think he dropped oil on the track or something. And it probably ignited, you know, on the headers. And that's probably what cooked his entire wiring harness and all that good stuff. And before I could turn back around, there's a mushroom cloud over by turn nine. And I'm like, well, I'm on the radio. Kobe, 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 Kobe. I'm like, shit. I get on the golf cart. I haul ass over there. There he is on fire, fully engulfed. I'm like, great. (laughs) We come out of seven and Michael told me, you know, he's seen flames smoking or whatever. And I was thinking it's just something on the headers or, or whatever. It'll burn off. When I went under the bridge and I went to pull the car back into fourth gear, when I went into fourth gear, the shifter boot just disintegrated 
and flame come up through it. So I'm what in the fourth, what about 140 mile an hour or so? Yeah, you're you were probably doing between 130 and 150 somewhere. Now you were flying because you came out of seven like a bat out of hell. And I'm on fire, and I'm trying to get this thing woed up, get this thing stopped. I didn't know if it was fuel, if it was oil, if I mean what was going on. We're putting pretty big, pretty good bit of wind to the fire at 140 mile an hour. So I top the bridge, and I see the next corner worker is before you. I guess we'll call it eight before you get where the club course would come back on the track. Yep. We get to nine. See the corner worker there. So I start gearing it down and I'm already dropping wind and net, dropping seat belts, you know, trying to get out, get ready to get out of the car. And I did what you're not supposed to do. And I'll admit it, I panicked. When I got the car stopped, me and Michael are, you know, we're bigger, taller guys. And he's, I'm about six, one and a half, six, did, two. Did you start yelling, save me, Jesus, save me, Tom Cruise? <laughs> Dude, I was, <laughs> I was in the car. I think we got it to about 24 seconds with flame. Wow. I went to pull the fire handle. And the fire handle had already melted to the dash. You know, it was getting a little creepy. At this point, we got oil burning. We've got the fiberglass body burning, the legs and windshields burning. And I'm choking to death. When I dumped the seatbelts, I got them hung in my Hans device. And I couldn't get loose. And I'm sitting there trying to fight to get loose. And the smoke's getting darker. And it's, it was what, like 2 o'clock in the afternoon? I couldn't see in, right here. I mean, it was, I was blind. And I'm screaming at the corner worker, help me, help me, help me. I mean, because he's literally 20 yards from me. He was maybe, no, it wasn't even that. He's like 15 feet from you. I could could see his eyeballs. And I'm screaming, help me, come help me. You know, you got a damn fire extinguisher, bring it over here. And he wouldn't do anything. For some reason, I just kept fighting to live. And I kept fighting with it, fighting with it, fighting with it. And I finally got loose out of the seatbelts. I got out of the car. And I ran and got the fire extinguisher off the wall. And I probably should have called Road Atlanta and chewed everybody out, but I didn't. And this corner worker says, the fire truck will be here in about 30 seconds. I said, the damn thing will be burned up in 30 seconds. Give me the fire extinguisher. And I grabbed it off the wall, ran back, stuck it in the hood, vent, and dumped it. But I guess it was, I was running on adrenaline then because after that, I collapsed to the ground. And that was the second time he went to the medical facility at Road Atlanta on the same weekend. The car was scorched, man. It was it was bad. It scared the hell out of all of us. I mean, everybody that went by, Tracy was on the you know on the track at that time. There were several drivers, you know, that were really close friends with. They didn't know what to do, whether they needed to stop and help him or they were just throwing yellow. No, not even double yellows. They were racing by him while they were on. He was on fire. It was it was crazy. Thankfully, he got out. He was right on the edge of the track, and when he stepped out, he actually stepped onto the track. And thankfully, everybody was far enough left realizing what was going on, even with the yellow flags, that they kept him safe. But speaking negative about the situation would be bashing road Atlanta or bashing NASA, but F you, whatever. I don't care. You, you could have threw a red flag. What's it going to hurt? I'm literally on fire. And Tracy could was the leader of the race. And she literally was going to stop on the track and help me get out of the car. It was that bad. But he was like, where's the red flag? Why is there not a red flag? I was yelling at the corner worker, throw the red, throw the red. Cause he was just out there, you know, and, and thankfully fire got there pretty quick and they were still like, just racing. I was like, this is a fun race, man. Shut this thing down. Wasn't cool. But we learned a lot that day. You know, it's so it's one of those things. The rescue crew got to me. You know, once I seen that, you know, they were putting fire out or whatever, I, I finally got in the ambulance and we're going down the back stretch. And where we always park, we call it Mafia Hill, which is up at 10A above the, the bleachers or whatever. I told the ambulance driver, I said, when you go by here, I said, my people's up here on the hill. When you go by, throw a thumbs up out the window and let them know I'm okay. I'm alive. Apparently, Debbie misunderstood that is he's dead or something. I don't know. He thought he said, come on, bad. They nearly beat us to the Infield Care Center. It was a life-changing experience. I'll, I'll say that. And it's really pushed me to help others in racing 
Don't buy the cheap fire suit, man. Don't buy the cheap seat belts. Don't buy the cheap gloves. Wear your underwear because we all, you know, we all wear fire suits and we all think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. Bullshit. It can happen. And it happened to me. Biggest fears, you know, in racing, I think for anybody that's on track and is taking this stuff seriously with a car that really has some performance to it. It's, it's one thing to be out there in a Mini Cooper, you know, or, you know, just a regular old street car. But I mean, dude, if you hit the wall the right way, something might pop, you know, and the next thing you know, you're engulfed in flames wishing to god you had all that gear i had a nice alpine star suit that was getting kind of old i upgraded mine you know i, I just nope not taking that chance balaclava nomex underwear socks i mean look nasa does an excellent job no fault to them you know it's that they, they weren't in control of the corner workers i think that nasa no. does a great great job with safety just like the rest of the clubs do but it's because of them that they've ingrained into us to wear all that stuff right because look a lot of your dirt track guys dude they got suits that are 25 years old they don't wear gloves. They don't wear a balaclava. I never understood as far as dirt track racing. I got buddies that will not wear gloves. Why? Because I can feel the steering wheel better. And my longtime saying that I've always used, and this may be too R-rated, you're not going to wear the gloves in the race car. Who's going to hold your pecker when you need to piss, when you're burnt? <laughs> it's so true, though, because you don't think about it. You go to the racetrack, whether it's a track day or a race, ah, it ain't going to happen to me. I'll be fine. Next thing you know, you're fully engulfed in flames going, uh-oh. Mm -hmm. there's a problem that's another detractor you know late models are they're wild man i mean you know you got parts moving extremely fast for what they are you know what i mean and it's shit happens dude and you got to be ready for it and thankfully you know the only thing kobe really happened to him a little bit of smoke inhalation and some more oxygen solved that problem for him and you know pretty much burned his nose a little bit and yeah, you know, but thank God. I mean, he had his he had his visor down. The flames were still coming up, you know, under his helmet through his balaclava. But I mean, think about it: no balaclava on, visor up. People don't think about that. They just cruise around their visor up, man. I, that's something I enforce more in racing is you know keeping the shield down because it's yeah. there for a reason. And that weekend was the first weekend I actually started using a helmet sock. So I had on the balaclava and and the helmet sock. So it was kind of double protection. But even with the shield down, even with the sock. You know, the helmet sock, I still got flame in the helmet. As someone who's experienced being on fire before, not in a car or anything, because they always teach you as a kid, you catch fire, stop, drop, and roll. For me, I was working on a – and fuel got sprayed on me and it backfired, and I wound up being a ball of flame running through the field. I never thought to hit the ground. It's one of those things you never think about, and it's like no. you were saying that you got hung up in your belts trying to get out. I can't imagine how bad that would have freaked out because – I was freaking out running through the damn yard with just being like my whole face and chest on fire and my arms. So I was like, I'd hate to imagine being stuck in a car, having trouble with my arms. I, I did freak out. I, I did get a little crazy there for a second, but I had to tell myself to calm down and get out of that car. I mean, I was hacking, coughing, wheezing, trying to get some fresh air. And I was in it for over 20 seconds. I say, I say 24, 25 seconds. My fire suit's done. I will not wear it again. It's hanging on the shop wall. You know, being bigger guys, you know, Kobe's 6'1", 6'2". I'm 6'4". You know, getting into a little, you know, they, they look like massive cars, but when you're in the cockpit, it's, it, yeah. there's no, I mean, you got your helmet on, your Hans device, and all this gear, you know, you got radio wires everywhere, and, and just being able to maintain that calm when you're, you're on a fire is just next level, man. I mean, it's, it's scary. I admit it, I panicked when it happened, when I got stopped and I was trying to get all the belts off and the radio unhooked. I finally figured out afterwards tearing the car down, the reason I didn't hear Michael on the radio is because the radio harness had already burned up. I wasn't going to hear I mean, him. I looked I looked at Kobe once we knew it was okay. He was back in the pits with us. You know, we all we all hugged it out for a minute. And 
tried to make light of the situation. I looked at him and I said, you know, NASA's big into safety, you know, and, and, and kudos to them for that. You know, everybody that, that works for NASA, the owners of NASA are great. We'll be impounded for whatever after a race or qualifying. And, you know, they'll say, all right, exit drills. And we're like, oh, you know, you have to get out of the car in 15 seconds. You know, well, I looked at Kobe and I said, I bet you're glad we do those exit drills now, aren't you? And he just kind of shook his head and laughed. It, it's all there for a reason, you know, pay attention. They should make you try to do the exit drills in the dark covered in they smoke. Because that's where it's going to be when it happens. It's not yeah, being on a nice sunny day, that's for sure. It's not going to happen where the safety director can go, all right, try it again. See, I, I told you my story sucked. This is actually a great segue into the future of things, right? So let's first start off with what's the future of KTR number 13? Where are things now? You know, maybe now that we're six months away from the fire, is there a new car? Are there more plans? What's going on there? And let's also dive into the future of late model mafia and where things are going there as well. As far as the future KTR, we plan on going back road racing soon. I've had a lot going on in my life in the past four months, six months, something like that. Just a little bit of my story. The fire happened the first weekend of December and at Road Atlanta. Two days after Christmas, my grandfather was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Out of respect for him, I stepped away from racing for a little while because it made him nervous. He passed away back in April. So there was three or four months there I was not behind the wheel. I actually had another car that I was in the process of purchasing ready to go. That deal just didn't work out. We're uh, looking at doing another car, and I'm going to try something really crazy, and Michael and Debbie's not too happy about it. Alpine Stars saved me in a race car, so we're going to take we're gonna go two-wheel racing. Oh, interesting. Yes, sir. I keep telling him he's not 18 anymore, and with age comes cage, but he doesn't want to listen. He's not as old as I am, so I guess he's still got a little bit of a shot at it. But I came from motorcycles. I know how bad it hurts to wreck and break seven bones at one time. <laughs> I want to try I may do it one time and say no forget this and then again I may I may love it I don't know it's just something I want to try I've always been a fan of you know MotoGP and stuff like that I want to try that but my roots are in stock car racing and I'm not going to leave home I, I know where I belong so Michael what about the future of late model mafia what's, what's going on late model mafia is here to stay to be honest it's grown to a point especially with pit lane where I think we're going to step into a new venture too that'll be more of the parent to Late Model Mafia and it'll be Motorsports Mafia. We're really going to branch out. I think the Late Model Mafia was a bit too niche for you know the general motorsports population. And I think that yeah. from the feedback that Kobe and I are receiving, I think it's, it's wise for us to maybe expand it out a little bit. Motorsports Mafia is on the horizon. We'll be transitioning anyone that's not Late Model related over to Motorsports Mafia. It'll be two wheels, it'll be four wheels, it'll be road racing, asphalt, dirt, rally, whatever, you name it, bring it. Like we're, we're here to be one cohesive, you know, motorsports family and have fun and help people market their teams and, and just get out there, get the exposure they need. You know, we're hoping maybe one of these days, one of these teams makes it to the big time. We can say that we had a small part in helping them get there. Look forward to Motorsports Mafia. We have uh, one more exciting thing that I, I guess I'll release right here for the first. Under Motorsports Mafia and, and subbed out by Late Model Mafia, we are actually in the process of building out our first mobile simulator rig. Basically, we have a short bus, which is very fitting for late model mafia as you can hear from the past hour or so and we are putting in two full-blown simulator rigs in the back and we will be basically traveling to dirt tracks asphalt ovals road course tracks you name it and whoever wants to jump into the simulators feel free to do so come on in we'll you know we'll load up i racing we'll get everything on and we'll load the track that we're at or you know we'll let people run it out and, and have fun and see what these drivers experience out there a lot of families out there especially at the oval tracks you know and the dirt tracks there's a lot of spectators that maybe want to see what it's like and and we definitely think it'd be cool to bring something like that to the crowd so 
And then, of course, you know, your club racing and all that at 5 p.m., everybody shuts down, the beer drinking commences, and what better place to go try to see if you can handle Roebling Road than after a six-pack in, in a simulator. So, <laughs> who knows? I mean, it could be a lot of fun. So, yeah, we're excited, like to, announce that. We're excited to announce that. The bus is about a, a, about a quarter of the way built. We, we just gutted it and painted the whole thing, and, and we're getting ready to build all the foundation on the inside, power, and all that good stuff, and we're hoping to have it ready to rock and roll for 2023. So Mike and Kobe, any shout outs, promotions, or anything else you'd like to share that we didn't cover up until this point in the episode? First and foremost goes out to my crazy ass wife for putting up with all this stuff. I mean, I love her to death. Uh, My stepson, Zach, the rest of the family, you know, for being there by my side and and just putting up with my shenanigans and, you know, help me succeed in this stuff, you know, and just go out and have fun as a family. A couple of sponsors, I I can't not mention Hurricane Tumblers, uh, Speedy Racewear, Trinity Motorsports, MFREX Designs and Chicane and Violin HD. Just a couple that kind of helped me get to where I'm at with MGR, with Michael Gallagher Racing and the 45 late model. You know, looking back over the years racing, I... It started with my mom and dad helping me as far as, you know, getting started in dirt go-kart racing and stuff. And my dad actually opened a kart shop and ran a kart shop the same time I was racing all those years. So my dad's been a really big influence on me racing and he's a big shout out. I owe him. I owe him one. He spent a lot of money when I was younger and I didn't realize it. But looking back now on, you know, on a race team, you go, damn, Pop spent some money. We traveled all over the place. We were going five, six, seven states a year on the road and that's, that's some money past few years i have to thank michael and debbie Yelger. they've been a big part of my promotion I, i'm the wrench monkey they handle the marketing and the brains of the business you know zach his stepson's been a big help to me it means the world to me i give him hell but that's my buddy my fiance Brittany has put up with a, a lot of shit the past few years from wrecking and on fire and you know everything else so that's a big one as far as sponsors and stuff i've got some really good connections in racing uh jimmy garman's one you know he's a big supporter of mine Alan Thornton, Jack Stanford, those guys have been a big help to us in the late model program. They are wicked fast. Carlos Gann, he's been a big help to me. Jim Barfield, if anybody knows old school NASCAR, probably knows that name. He was very influential in Bill Elliott's career, and he's helped me a lot. It's been a fun ride, and you know I look forward to what 22 brings, and I think 23 is going to be a really big year for Motorsports Mafia, whether we're doing it on four wheels or two, or I'm sitting on the pit box drinking beer screaming at michael i don't know we'll we'll see where we go with it but i'm looking forward to it if you're a late model enthusiast or want to learn more about the community that mike and kobe have created be sure to stop over at www.latemodelmafia.com or follow them on social media at late model mafia or instagram tiktok as well at late model mafia america on facebook that's right and mike and kobe i can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show and giving us better insight into the world of late models kind of giving us a better idea of what that really means and getting us excited to come check out some of the races and maybe even get behind the wheel of one of these monsters. So thank you for everything that you're doing in the motorsports community to continue to spread this type of enthusiasm and share this part of the motorsports world with the rest of our audience and everybody that's out there that might be interested in learning about this for the first time. So thank you. Thanks for having us guys. We appreciate it. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. 
We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gummy Bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.